because we live in a Puritan police state, we are obliged to inform you that we may sometimes use explicit language. If you are looking for more of that, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or visit our website at wihhw.com. Now that you've been informed, things are about to get weird. Welcome to what I had heard was, I am Jennifer. And I'm Diane. And Anna is still under the weather, but she'll be back soon, and she sends her best. This week, we have activists, advocates, and friends of the show, the lovely ladies from the Red Dove podcast. Would you mind introducing yourself and your show? Sure. I'm <laughs> Um, yeah, thank you for having us. Um, I'm Rainy. Um, yeah, so we are the host of the Red Dove podcast, and this is Blue. I'm Blue. Hey, and I'm Liz. Thank you so much for having us. We love your show. Thank you for being here. This is my first time recording on like another show. This is so exciting. Really? Yes. That is exciting. Very shy. Well, welcome. Thank you. Yeah, I love your show. You guys tell great, you ladies tell great stories. We're pretty easygoing. We're, <laughs> uh, I actually had a friend just tell me they started listening to our podcast and they were saying that we have conversations that they wouldn't expect that would be on like on air, you know? So, and I told them it's because of our relationship. We've grown to really be comfortable with each other. And I kind of forget that that outside world is there right. now. So yeah. it's been really fun to do this season and have more guests and like bring them into our circle or like share our circles yeah. and um, kind of expand what I've been comfortable with before. Right. So totally get it. Right. It's very strange when somebody from your past just like messages you or emails you and they're like oh hey i was listening to your show and you're like oh shit i forgot anybody <laughs> else could hear that <laughs> right and then i've been getting like quotes of things that we've been saying but they're out of the blue with no context and so i think at one point we did an episode and we were talking about like we were talking about the like, kitten mittens and sex mittens and kitten and something like that <laughs> And so I just got a, a text that was like, sex kitten mittens, like question mark. And I had no, I was like, are they texting me like for a hookup? Like what is happening right now? But no, it was, uh, they were just quoting me from the show and I didn't even know it. I'm not at right. that level. You'd be like, there's a hundred episodes. Right? Give me a hint here. Right, right. You can't come in out of the blue like yeah. that. That's right. I've. I've edited every episode and I have long since forgotten many things that have right, occurred yeah, for sure. Could you tell us a little bit about what your podcast is about or what brings you together on your podcast? Sure. So we normally sit around and talk a lot of junk and basically save the world through many conversations but we felt like, you know, other people deserve to hear how intelligent we are. No, I'm joking. <laughs> I agree. I mean, I've heard it. I agree. Thanks. No. So we just love talking to one another. We love talking to other people. Uh, Rainy came out here and we're so Liz and I are in the Northeast, the Philly area. 
And uh, she came to hang out with us. She's from Cali. I'll let her talk about herself more. But um, even coming all the way across the country, she was just like that breath of fresh air that everyone wanted to jump into conversations with. And it just shows how much like we just enjoy learning about new things. We're passionate about, like you said, you know, being advocates and activists for those who have not yet gained their voice, right? Um, and as women, we really enjoy talking about not only the issues of women, but women of color specifically, <clears throat> excuse me, and sharing their stories. Some are just like we were talking about, some are horror stories, some are stories of triumph, some are stories where we are collectively learning about new things. But either way, no matter what it is, we're going to talk about it. So that's kind of our show. We call it somewhat of a kickback, you know, where we're just essentially almost shooting the shit sometimes, but from an educated perspective and trying to bring some things to light that others may not have considered before, you know, hearing us talk a little about it. And I think what also is kind of cool about um, the Red Dove is that we're experts, but we're experts in different fields. So, you know, we all bring our expertise to the playing field, but we all have this deep passion for mental health and activism and, you know, looking at things through yeah, the lens the of moment. women of color who are so many times unsung heroes in our society and don't get the same recognition as they should. So, you know, we are really big on shining lights where their story should be told. We gave that our shot the last <laughs> season. <laughs> Tried to bring in a few women from the past. That's awesome. That's cool. Yeah, tell some stories that hadn't been told before. And during those conversations, a lot of really good questions came up, at least on my end. Like you realize how much education you do need and how that's a continuous journey mm -hmm. to have that education in areas that you thought you knew something yeah. about, you know, it's, and you can only really do that through the stories of other people and their experiences and sharing that with each other. So true. I was saying to my brother the other day, you know, good advice is good advice. And I think sometimes we get so caught up in who's giving the advice that we forget to, or not even, we don't even, we're, we haven't been uh, socialized to be able to take different perspectives and realize how much more similar we are than different. Um, I think yes. through a lot of these stories that we talk about and share, and even I'm sure from your experience as well, it's like mental health is often the root of it. And then as yes. we take those different avenues and paths from whatever you're experiencing at that moment, you start to see, okay, well, I responded that way as well and it didn't work out for me. Or I responded this way and I found so much success. But it still starts with the mindset, you know, of where your decision-making goes from there and even like what options sometimes you can have available to yourself. Um, but then, of course, we talk about those that uh, might not have the same experiences as what we might consider like the normal middle class or whatever, you know? So just really like those, those deep dives, I would call it is really where you get to see, like you said, how much education 
really impacts even like your ability to think from about things from different perspectives yeah it's like right twofold like doing it the story way the way we do it for like the majority of our shows it's to enter the audience's brain like non-confrontationally with the story and it also is a way of like anti-racism or dismantling white supremacy it's a vehicle to talk about heavier issues and also um part of it like the dovetails which are just straight up like biopics of black women in uh, north america we we haven't gone outside of this continent yet but that came about as a way to push back again and to be in support of the teach the truth movement all three of us are heavily involved in like activism related to public education or we have experience and background with that. So like if they won't teach you the full story of American history, you can come and listen to it for free on our show. It's been wonderful recording with both of them. Very, It's very um, therapeutic when we get done. We're all like feeling really good. Yeah. And that's real service that you are doing for people who don't have access to that kind of education or that kind of knowledge where they can't find it locally. Um, I think initially I touched base with you guys over the coal pits. Yeah. Georgia. Georgia. Yep. Uh, The disrespect of nature is just astounding. And other human beings who have to live where they are just destroying like so we were really interested in doing your show too because a lot of the things that we speak about personally impacts us so just like we were talking about pre uh pre-recording sometimes we're like going through those meltdowns where it's like this happened or that happened blah 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 and we're able to uh take a lot of what we talk about into our own lives and stand on it, you know, using like standing, just like we were talking about the other day on another show, standing on the shoulders of others, which is great. Cause just like Liz was saying, it has become so therapeutic. It's like, all right, we need to record tonight. You know, are you, I know Liz is always the leader in that. Are you guys available? (laughs) So we definitely, um, are excited to jump into this conversation because we're always learning and the mental health components fine. Yes. I don't know if I announced what we were doing. We're talking about this week or not, <laughs> but if I have, I'm going to tell you again, if I haven't, then now you're going to know. And we're going to talk about the history of mental health treatments. And there is so much. What's the first thing that comes to mind? When you hear history of mental health yeah, treatment, stigma, not good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. For me, I Hard. think about. Um, I've recently shared this, but I studied education and am an educator. And what comes to mind for me are my students and other students that I've had in the past, because the ways that we have transitioned as a country. Uh, with the way we educate our students is very, very different now. And every year it continues to advance in us as uh, educators and then 
just people in society being able to develop awareness and understanding and respect for uh, people experiencing different aspects of trauma or uh, just us being better or more considerate of the way the brain actually works, right? And I just was talking to Liz and her partner about the idea of changing the environment to assist people rather than, and we were talking about children specifically, but rather than the expectation of children changing to the environment, right? And that's a really, really new concept. So for me, what I think about is people literally being locked away, which now we look at that because we're so, we are more aware, right? And we're like, that is just not okay at all. But years ago, that was exactly what they did. And they had all of these labels that they would just group people in with no understanding of what they were experiencing, the way they were thinking, and then even understanding that they still can be successful in society, you know? They didn't know what they were doing. Yeah. It seems to me that the income gap is really um, crucial in determining who's situation changes for them versus who is expected to change for their situation. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have enough money and your situation will change to whatever you need it to change. I mean, even just on like a basic level, you would get to the institution. Yeah. Even like on a basic level, like I'm, I'm, I'm changing jobs soon and I'm looking at the healthcare benefits and looking at, okay, like which benefits can I afford where I have access to a mental health professional? That's not something that everybody has access to. You know, your bottom of the tier healthcare that you have to have might not have that at all. So, I mean, like, you know, we even put barriers in the way for people to do that. Or, you know, if you have 50, 60, $70 a session to be able to go and talk to someone, great. If not, you know, it's kind of like you're on your own. So, I mean, like it, that stigma that we have in this country is so harmful. And, you know, I, I have a military background. I was uh, married to a military person who, you know, also dealt with some issues and the stigma of you can't say anything if you have anything going on, you know, and it just breeds such dysfunction. And again, that, dis- that, that, uh, that stigma, those stereotypes that you're, you're, you know, the use of the word crazy and things like that. And it, it bars people from getting help. You know, we, we stand in the way of people getting help on so many different levels, you know, socioeconomically, um, politically, uh, you know, um, in all of these different fashions, we just really make it difficult to get help and to make things better. We don't normalize that these are issues that everybody deals with at some point. Adding to that, it's crazy. It's interesting because just as you're saying, Rainy, we all experience these things. So even the idea of uh, how I was kind of getting at the fact that culture also affects your, what you consider Uh, to be problematic or the norm or typical or atypical when we think about mental health. And the thing is, you know, you think about your, your muscles, for example, like your legs. If you have a challenge with one of your legs, then you seek out treatment in order to be able to use that leg again in, in the ways that are required. Right. 
but we don't give the mind that same consideration. And it's really something that we should be nurturing and working with through, in my opinion, at least through different uh, tools or therapy, right? To strengthen uh, how we use it, understanding that you do have some sort of control over it, you know, in order to process or uh, make decisions um, and even recognize what's actually happening. Like I, um, when we think about culture and different, because, and the reason I bring up culture is because although there are different components that affect access, there's also a lot of mind work or mindset within culture that stands in between uh, whether people receive services to, you know, assist with their mental health or even understand or respect that mental health is a thing, you know? Um, so to me, it's hard to explain exactly what I'm saying, but what I am saying is just your thought process around mental health is also a component of mental health, if that makes sense. Because we, a lot of times we have these thoughts of what are other people going to think? And that interrupts a lot of people's ability to understand, wow, my student, my child learns differently, right? Or wow, when I uh, experience unexpected change, I begin to have thoughts that might not be productive or healthy, you know? Um, but my culture says that I do not respond to that. Or my culture says that I'm stronger than that. So I don't, I don't even allow it to be uh, something that I'm going to act as though it's really there. I remember I went through a very traumatic uh, just like relationship, I would say overall, just it got completely out of hand. And when I was moving through that, I had to do a lot of just slowing down and respecting that I was not thinking in the ways that I thought before. Right. And I tried to talk to my mom about this idea of being depressed. And she's like, no, you know, don't, don't put that word on it. Don't, don't assign that to it. <laughs> and that was because she just didn't want to give me that label. Right. Um, but as for me being an adult at that time, thank goodness I was able to say, okay, well, this is actually something I need to process and grow rather than to stay in that same place. So I think culture with mindset, you know, impacts the way we view mental health and how we respond to those different feelings or occurrences um, with the mind. I was just talking to my therapist about somebody was, they released that they had died from complications from mental illness. And uh, so we were discussing that and I said, you know, I feel like that should be something in itself right there. Mm -hmm. If, if somebody, so I just feel like it should be some way that we can remember people that's, that's different than, hey, they did this to us. They did this in spite of us, but whatever. Um, and then also addiction is, I want to say almost exclusively, it's self-medicating. Mm -hmm. And yes. if we can view it like that, then we can start to treat it without the same type of stigma that we're seeing all around all of these. Yeah. Well, yeah, because issues. like we have so much sympathy for sickness of the body 
or, you know, illness of the body, but illness of the mind, we have zero sympathy for. We have just this because we can't see it. We can't see it. It's not this outward thing. You know, it's not this cancer or, you know, missing a limb. And so we treat it as suck it up, right? Like suck it up. And, and, you know, we don't look at addiction as anything other than you made a choice and you're doing this. You know, no one would look at somebody with cancer and Mm -hmm. say, you made this choice, right? But we don't offer that same kindness, that same grace to those who suffer from mental illness. But because we can't see it, it makes it even more important to talk about it. Because if you can't see what other people are experiencing, you start feeling isolated. Like you're the only one going through it. So there must be something wrong with you. But the more you share about share that internal health, you you share the health of your internal workings. I don't know how to say that. You yeah, know what I'm are. trying to say. Mm-hmm. It, yeah. Then you don't feel so isolated. And so these kinds of stories are more important or equally as important. Yeah. Just as we're talking about addiction, we talk about addiction and we already know in our head specific things that we associate with addiction, right? But, and I bring this up because just as I was talking about the experience that I went through that really was like a challenge for me, uh, being with someone who had an addiction, right? As I observed that Mm -hmm. person, and even as as the person who's trying to support them and help them move through that experience to get to dif- a different space, I started to realize that addiction, we put it, we assign it to certain uh, objects or um, things that we might ingest, right? But we've, we don't consider that addiction is a behavior and we can be addicted to so many things. And if you think about it from that perspective, I think then the conversation of mental health takes a different form and that you're truly discussing behaviors and habits. You're not talking about an addict uh, to, you know, to heroin, heroin or an addict of crack cocaine. It can be an, a person that has, uh, extremely ritualistic behaviors that create an unhealthy space for them or a person that uh, uses what they are addicted to in an unhealthy way. And I remember I traveled to uh, Texas and I had a client that was, I was working as a management consultant and they were talking about how their wife worked in the healthcare industry and they had, we were just sharing like, what the different, the most common things that she saw patients for was. And he shared that his wife said, because they had CrossFit in, it was such a big thing out there. There were multiple, like multiple times a week, they would have patients that would come in for a breakdown of muscle memory. And because they were addicted to CrossFit, right? So it's truly the behavior or the habit creating an unhealthy space for you, whether it's mentally, whether it's physically, but that's where I've begun to think about, you know, what addiction really is. And then from that space, 
thinking about self and then what type of behaviors that I want to create for myself. And even when I'm speaking with others, I consider that because I think we kind of gloss over that too, because it's really just arriving at what is, what is this repetitive thing that you might be doing that might be harming you? But there also might be people we see a lot of times too, you think about like AA and other organizations like that, where they almost use that addictive personality. And I have not been to AA to speak to it um, with a true informed mindset. So I don't want to speak as though I know, no, but from some of my observations and supporting someone else, I observed that some members, what they end up doing is still using that same activity, right? But they put it on something else. And does that really solve the problem? Like, that's another question. And then when you're pursuing that other thing that now becomes what you're addicted to, how do you shape healthy thoughts and responses and actions around that? That made me think of, wasn't one of, forgive me, I don't know too much about the different types of drugs, but wasn't one drug used to cure another addiction and then that became addictive? Was it, was it yeah, heroin? Methadone is awful. Meth. And you, it's hard methadone, to get Methadone, they of. even have naproxen, you know? Yeah, and yeah. we forgive you. You definitely don't have to be, <laughs> you don't have to be well-informed <laughs> in that area. There's a lot I'm not well-informed <laughs> in. Right, and that's, when you understand that, I think that's the key. Knowing it all, I always tell people, I'm like, like kids, I'm like, that's that's concerning. When you have the, the friend that's like, I know everything, that's when you're like, oh, mm-hmm. let me see if I can expand my friend group just a little bit. <laughs> you know, you touched on something, Blue, and I wanted to kind of hone back in on that. You know, we sometimes, you know, you see replacements for other addictions, and it's interesting that some addictions we are ex- we are okay with, right? Like, we are more okay with, like, being a workaholic. Mm-hmm right? Being addicted to being in your job and working hard, right? And being productive, right? But that can be unhealthy too, right? Um, Addicted to working out, right? Uh, Healthy eating or eating a certain type of thing, right? Um, But we don't look at those the same way as we would look at somebody who is addicted to whiskey, right? And and we also Mm -hmm. look at that person as a weaker person than the workaholic or something. But, you know, in reality, they're both dealing with similar types of things, right? Like, like Blue was saying, you are not, you're having these habits that are creating an unhealthy environment for you in some way, shape or form. That's, you know, what that is. So um, I I think it's interesting that we don't call it like what it is. You know, we, we have euphemisms and for, things that make us feel better or, you know, if you are still productive to society in the way that society feels like you can be productive, then we'll allow that kind of mental illness to go unchecked. We won't, we won't condemn that. You know, we won't try to do anything to stop that either. So I think that that's another, you know, layer upon layer upon, you know, this, this very big topic of mental health. You know what they used to do, though, like, for, like, alcoholism, for example, like, well, I just want to say, like, I think now to be able to separate all of these things is very new, like, as far back as, like, 1945, people, like, 
that were considered addicted to drugs or to alcohol, they would be put in the same institution as somebody that um, might now be classified as schizophrenic. Like, they didn't know what they were doing. And it's not even like they're done figuring out what they're doing. Right next door to the people who didn't right. have and money. Right, like, and so the institution life, then it's like, that's also talking about upper middle class rich culture i think if you were for example if you were a woman you would be treated first off you have access to doctors money to go to institutions not that they were even that good but if you were a working class excuse me if you were a working class woman you didn't have the access and also there were just certain things or mental health conditions that they didn't value or recognize in the working class. So like all of the discussion with American history with mental health, most of what's out there is, it doesn't say it, but it's centering on a white middle-class rich experience, but it was still horrifying and terrible. I mean, they literally chained people to walls. They were underfunded mental health institutions. Um, And even if you did have good intentions, you didn't know what the hell you were doing. You didn't know why X equals Y. You know what I mean? They were still figuring it out. And I think it was like 1941, Life magazine went into a bunch of institutions and took pictures and published it. And it was, the scenes were horrific. Someone described them as like a kind of like, um, walking into like a POW camp and like people were dirty. People didn't, their clothes weren't clean. They hadn't been fed and it was horrific. And America was kind of, they saw this in life. They're like, Oh my God. And, but I think that's also like the problem is what they ended up doing in like 1941. There were these two, there was a surgeon and a doctor who came up with the lobotomy and they practiced on corpses and then they did a real, like a, a real person, an alive person. And they drilled six holes in her head. And thank God she didn't die. And they said it was a success. And the mental health institutions loved it. Because now you have people that aren't screaming, attacking you, all this stuff. They're just vegetative, sitting at a, it's, it's a better work environment. So it's like the mental health history of our country is an absolute shit show, a complete horror show. Well, no, his name is Walter Freeman, and he's not a surgeon. He partnered up with Watts, who was a surgeon. And then Walter was like, this is taking too long. It's two hours for the procedure. And he comes up with this new method. Of doing the procedure in 10 minutes. Mind you, he's not a surgeon. He takes an ice pick from his kitchen and a mallet from his like garage or whatever. And he comes up with this whole new lobotomy. He called it the ice pick lobotomy. And he would put the ice pick oh in the God. eye, right in the corner with your nose, with the mallet, tap, tap, tap. And this is revolutionary 19, 1940s. This isn't 1800s, man. This is like 1940s. This went on to the 50s. So like mental health history 
it's still going on right now today because there's so little that we know. But yeah, he Watts Watts found out. He's like, "What the fuck are you doing?" He bails. So now Freeman, not a surgeon, buys a van, calls it a lobotomy mobile, and goes across the country to each mental health institution hospitals. They lined their patients up to get lobotomies. They loved it. Even though he didn't keep objective data. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure they did. All of a sudden, everybody's happy and quiet. But they did it to people like Rosemary Kennedy. Yeah. In 1941. And the reason her family approved and brought these two surgeons to their home to do this to her was they said they couldn't control her. She had violent mood swings. Um, they said that she was like mentally like slower. They used a horrible word to describe her. And then it turns out way later, it's like, I don't think she was slow at all. I just think that she was something. I don't know what it was, but they had these two surgeons, they had a doctor and a surgeon come out and do the lobotomy. She, after the lobotomy, she can't speak. She can't control her bladder. She's staring at a wall for hours and they end up institutionalizing her. So like, I guess the only good thing about the lobotomy is that the reason it ended 1951, 52, I want to say, Thorazine comes out. And Thorazine says, it markets itself as yeah. Uh, what is it? What is it called? I think it, it, it said I'm the chemical lobotomy. Even though they knew the lobotomies were bullshit, they weren't fixing what they said they were fixing. The only way to get the public into it was to say, "Oh, well, we're like a lobotomy, but we're just in a pill form." And then we all know what. Well, some of us know what Thorazine was like very popular and it helped a lot of people, like myself, who. Um, it was the first time it was recognized that like there's mental health disorders that are there. There's a physical component to it and no amount of talk therapy is going to get people like me able to function in society. So I always like to make a joke like, well, but for the lobotomies, we might not have, I'm not on Thorazine, but I mean, it's like, I understand the significance because from Thorazine, then we get all of these other drugs and then we really start helping people. And they lock you in now, even even when the current choice of medications available, still the majority of those lock you in with significant side effects that affect the rest of your life. And um, and if we're being honest, in some cases, enough so that it makes you more miserable than when you started, which is okay in someone who is having a hard time temporarily in their life versus someone who will need to be medicated for the rest of their life. It's like when you see like those infomercials for like the new drugs and then they start listing off all the side effects. You're like, (laughs) well, damn, I think I'll just keep what I had. Like, (laughs) And then you'll die and then you'll bleed. Right. And then, yeah. Right. Yeah. That's, that's, that's the ultimate side effect. (laughs) Right. (laughs) <laughs> it only happens once right. though right yeah hello reoccurrence right yeah right. <laughs> right. that's right you made a good point though rainy about uh 
how you were talking about, um, like how they, they deem your addiction acceptable or not. And then even going back to what you were talking about, Liz, with the, uh, lobotomies and just their thought process with mental health in that time, because that again, and that's where we see the intersection of culture, right? So, and even, and I, I go back to the schools a lot because that's where we see even that intersection too with curriculum, what we're teaching our students, what we're teaching the future, essentially, you know, those that will be creative thinkers and be able to contribute and then uh, how society impacts that. So when you think about it, if depending upon what is necessary at that time, that's how they're going to consider who is deemed able to progress in that learning environment and then ultimately be able to contribute in specific ways. You know, um, now we're because we have had so many advocates and when we look at a lot of uh history and I think about uh, autism in particular, which is another, I, I consider just different ways of learning being a part of mental health as well, because we need to stimulate the different parts of the brain so that we can begin, or those particular um, individuals with those differences can begin to exhibit more typical behaviors so they can be contributing members and, and independent as well. But when we think about that, we see that the family members were oftentimes the advocates to be able to truly speak about what that person is or was or might be capable of. So that's an interesting part, too, because as that changes, then our thought processes change. So even like today, we see a lot of businesses that participate in having um, different types of uh, of or people with different disabilities in the workplace. And we see that we consider some of those things in certain regions of the country or in certain schools when we're teaching them how to get to that job. So whether it's um, something where it's more gross motor, like you're and, and using those larger extremities, like your arms, hands, legs, feet, where you might be pushing carts or bagging groceries or uh, doing something that might require less cognitive skills or uh, uh, analytical or critical thinking. But that also kind of shapes the way we think about whether you can be productive. But I would say that's also problematic because the fact that we think we have the ability to deem whether someone can be productive or a contributor is the problem, in my opinion. You know, like when we really think about what we want for the future, we want the unknowns of the future, but we can't reach the unknowns if we're only uh, allowing the exploration of the past, right, in, in thought or in action. And what about those people who don't have advocates too? Like you were saying, the family are oftentimes advocates for those people. And I think about that all the time. What about people who don't have advocates on their behalf? Just, um, I think that's another positive to your podcast and show. 
you're exploring those ideas. What if people don't have advocates? It's just crazy. I was going to say, it's just crazy. And that's another thing. Like, where did that come from? Why do we say it all the time? Yeah. Yeah. So true. And that we have those, those vocabulary words that we assign to mental health or we assign to something that's unknown or different. And I've really gotten into lately, like Liz knows in a minute, you throw a word out. It could be a word that I've used a million times. And I'm like, well, hold on. Let me, let me just look this up to see whether I'm putting exactly. Am I assigning something to this? What does this word really mean? So yeah, that's a good point. I think for those that don't have advocates, thank God that we're now becoming more aware. You know, I um, volunteer at an equestrian center and the students that I assist or the riders that I assist are students with special needs. And they teach me all the time about how to interact with others that have special needs. And one thing in particular that they talk about is that you don't just come up and tell them, you know, oh, do it this way or do it that way, you know, allowing them to be their selves within the environment and then ask for the assistance that's needed. And that is what we, in my opinion, I think that's what we need to do when we think about mental health. That's the empowerment piece because we want people to be independent and able to maneuver with the, what we might deem as challenge or what they might deem as their norm, you know? Um, I was talking to my brother not too long ago about. Oh no! Oh, go I was ahead, just Liz. Say, go ahead. Like, there are people without advocates. I'm just gonna put right in, just in school, because it's like kind of depends on where are they. But a lot of interaction with uh, people without advocates happens when they enter the school system. So one thing you can do, even if you don't have a child, is attend your local board of education meetings and to ask critical questions. And like most schools have specific groups or PTAs dedicated to their special needs population. And um, if you reach out and start learning about what's going on in your super local area, one, there might be groups that are advocating for them. We just don't know about them yet. So we can always shine and like put a shine on, um, we always say add to their glow. And if there's not, like I said, school is a big place, institution, public schools, where a lot of people with either mental or physical um, different abilities enter the quote unquote system. So something just anyone can do is attend a board of education meeting and to ask those critical questions and get involved. Um, school is kind of our wheelhouse. So, but I'm sure that there's a, there's other um, avenues to explore, like staying in your lane and, and helping the greater movement. Well, and I think also like, like Liz was saying, it is, education is where we find a lot of that, but also education can be the place where it sets children on that path too. I mean, you know, where we see students who get help and services, which is fantastic, more likely than not, if that student is a person of color or a person of color, part of the LGBTQ community, 
they are not given the same resources. They are not given the same help. They are not given the same guidance. And we really can set them on a path of a really difficult life. I mean, you know, we know, as we know, you know, young black boys are three times more likely to be uh, dealt with punitively than their white counterparts. Uh, Young black girls, six times more likely, you know, and these are sometimes mental illness issues, you know, ADHD, um, autism being on the spectrum or something, but they aren't treated with the same, um, they aren't treated with the same courtesy or the same grace. They are not looked at as children needing help. They're looked at as, you know, smaller adults who are defiant, smaller adults who need to be punished, who need to be pushed into submission. And, you know, it's actually, there's a term called, you know, the adultification of, you know, young black girls. And we see that in systems all the time where, you know, young black girls in school systems are dealing with these issues. And instead of being given a resource uh, being given IEPs or 504s to help with these issues, they are given detention. They are expelled. They are put in uh, continuation schools. They are introduced to law enforcement, and it sets them on that path of you know um, always dealing with the juvenile systems and then the court systems. So you know, as wonderful as schools can be, it can also really be that kind of that nail in the coffin, you know, it can really be that dangerous place for students. And and I think that's where a lot of our work is, is leveling that playing field, you know, um, ha- making sure that we are advocates for those silent voices, you know, and, and don't even get me started on if you are, like I said, a person of color and in the LGBTQ community, you might not get any resources, especially if you're in a state that is actively trying to erase you from textbooks, erase you from um, everything, you know, we're watching that erasure happen right now in the South and in a lot of different states. And, you know, who's advocating for those students when you have governors making laws saying it's illegal to talk about your existence, right? And not saying, and please don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that, you know, LGBTQ and mental health go hand in hand. That's definitely not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying though is sometimes it 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 can lead to that, that erasure. It can it can lead to that isolation and then feeling like you have no one, right? And then you go to start self-medicating and then you 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 deal with these, right? We know that LGBTQ youth are one of the highest uh demographics for 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 taking their own lives because where else do they have to go? There's no one advocating for them. There's no one advocating and telling them, hey, you know what? being gay is actually not a mental illness. That's just who you are, right? So assigning this negativity on identities and 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 we see that happening in schools too. So um, that's something that, you know, we have to, we have to do better. I mean, you know, we're, we're losing children every day because of these practices and it's, it's, it's terrifying. Rainy, I thought you were going to go the other way with it because they just came out with more data where um, and sp- I'm just speaking about um, black children in schools are being overdiagnosed and put into the um, different abilities track. In fact, if you go on ProPublica and type in, I don't know, s- local schools, I- you'll eventually get there. I- I'm sorry, I forget what the, the article was, but they ProPublica put up you can look at every public school in the entire country, you can find your school, 
and it breaks down the demographics over a range of different categories, one of them being the Different Abilities Special Education Program. And it's like the misdiagnosis of Black and Brown students. I'm speaking only to my area because that's what I looked at. I looked at the numbers. And that's a huge issue. And then when they do get into the school system, the PTA or the advocate group at that school, they're all white. They don't consider the the black or brown child's experience or what they want. They group them in as it's just this one group. And even the quote-unquote advocates in special ed, just speaking about where I live right now, because it's the only one I, I'm familiar with, but we're having to like kind of push back gently and politely with them about considering the whole population. So it's, it's a lot. Yeah. And it's a system that feeds itself. So we also know from research that poverty affects the brain, right? And because poverty affects the brain and when we uh, are not receiving the things that we need. Uh, like let's talk about nutrients that assist with even getting oxygen to the brain so that then you're able, your brain as you're developing at a young age and continuing, ha certain things have to connect in the brain for you to then con continue on that path of development. And then other, I'm going to use this word, but it might not be the correct word, receptors or neurons, they have to be able to build upon what has already begun to connect. Again, I'm not speaking to the research correctly, but what I'm getting at is that poverty essentially breeds mental health mm -hmm. to a certain extent. Because if, when we think about not having, you're already having the physical challenge, then you're getting to the mental aspect. And if that, if there are certain things in the brain that cannot connect and you're already in a space where you can't, those things can't grow in a healthy way in the ways that uh, they might need to, then you're going to arrive at that space anyway. And then it's almost, it's, it's I'm, I'm getting a little tongue tied and explaining it, but I'm moving to the space of then I worked at a, um, as a reading specialist at a girl's prison and what a lot, a lot, a lot of the, uh, other professionals there were sharing with me was that most of the children, if not all of the children that were there had experienced extreme trauma. And that being from within the family, outside of the family, due to environment. But all of these things that we know are a part of the environment that we could affect, right, as advocates, as being aware, as policymakers, and the list goes on, because we set aside certain populations, it almost, it just continues to, to feed itself and keep that will moving and then increase the population. Um, one thing that we noticed too, just as you all were talking about, are those, I don't know if we would call them disparities, but more so differences, right? So a lot of uh, younger children are, white children are diagnosed with autism. And then we see other children of color that are diagnosed with ADHD or uh, behavior challenges. And we don't, we're not viewing things from the same lens as uh, these behaviors are demonstrating this specific challenge. So how do we address that? 
we're still trying to put people in separate groups and then also dictate like what they will be able to achieve or arrive at as an adult in society. And I think we have to, re- <clears throat> I think we have to remember that the physical component of poverty is also compounded by like the actual trauma of being in poverty. You know, the poverty PTSD is a real mm-hmm. thing. And I see it with people who have, who are very financially stable and have been for many years. It just doesn't right. leave. You know, if you grow up that way or you live that way long enough, it's right. there. And unless I guess you work through it, which I don't know anybody who actually has in any healthy manner, but I'm sure you can. I don't want to discourage anyone. Right. Right. No, I I definitely agree with that because, and I think that gives more um, backing to that idea of you have, like your whole body is growing and it needs to be nurtured as it grows. So just like the way I butchered that explanation about the brain, I think that's why we get to that point where like you're saying, the behaviors, the thought processes, the deficiencies still exist because there were certain things that were not able to, um, I don't want to just say connect, but there were certain inputs that that individuals might not have received. And that's why they're unable to deliver whatever the expected output is. That's why like food... I think circling back around to something you said earlier is, you know, there there is a lot of issues for kids of school age. And one thing I have seen, because I don't interact with school age children, (laughs) is that after they get out of school, nobody's watching. Mm -hmm. Nobody's there to see them every day to make sure that they're not on a, a downward spiral. And I can't speak for other people. I can only speak for myself, but... I don't always know that I need help when I need that it. That is so yeah. true. So it's been other people coming to me and saying, I'm concerned. Yeah. And I've had to learn through my years that if somebody comes to me and they are concerned, at least entertain the idea. Yeah. You know? That is yeah. so true. I've yeah. Been there. And that's why it needs to be a norm in sorry, that's why it needs to be a norm in our environment and us having these conversations. Because just like you said, when you're alone, that's when you need to be able to move through that space. You know, just like we were talking about with the addiction earlier, if I can just put it on something else and that's fine. But what if all of those things are not present, then what do you do? And that's where, if we really think about it personally, you know, even, um, I bring this up all the time because I just think it was so interesting, even though it was pretty tragic, but people gave Will Smith so much. And Nate, Liz and Rainey know I always am playing devil's advocate, but I'm sure you guys, you ladies saw what happened with the, um, Graham, the Oscars and the smack, mm-hmm. you know, and everyone said, that they can't believe he did this. And if they were, you know, doing blah, 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 then they wouldn't have this and that. And and I literally was at a friend's house and, uh, you know, I brought this conversation up just because it's so interesting to me how people think it's so easy to solve other people's challenges. Right. And um, my friends and I, we were playing Chinese checkers and alcohol got involved. And before 
we mind you, none of us knew how to play Chinese checkers. None of us are pros. You know, it was a new game to all of us. There, there was a heated argument over Chinese checkers to the point where people were ready to throw blows. And I'm like, but you just said you wouldn't do what Will Smith did. You, you know, so, you know, you're so much more intelligent than Will Smith, right? And we don't think about in those, and that's why I go back to the behaviors, right? It's knowing what to do with what your mind is saying. It's knowing how to respond to those different feelings that arise. Um, and that's what we really need to think about when it comes to mental health, not that population, but the population, you know? One of the things I was thinking as I was listening to everyone talk is that mental illness is not black and white. Mental illness, the way that you said in a, in a different, you were using it in a different way, but the way that you said that one child had ADHD and the other one had, according to the doctors too, they had autism or, uh, I just think that I don't even know that I could recognize as we were saying what my mental illness is, let alone try and assign it to somebody mm-hmm. else. So Yes, we've gotten further with the treatment of mental illness, as Liz was saying, like that it, that it used to be pretty bad, still is pretty bad, but we know more now. I still don't think we're anywhere near where we should be, in my own opinion. I'd agree with and that. And even my, I'm really resonating with a lot of the things that you're saying because my mom was a teacher for 40 years mm-hmm. and she was someone who would recognize in each child their own needs and how to best help them and provide resources for them. And I still think she wouldn't have been able to identify. Like, I think the world of this woman, I think she was a great educator and I still don't think she would have been able to give her kids the things that they might have needed. Yeah. And I can understand that. I think I I come from a family of educators too. And I think because we have so many conversations and even I more recently, my brother and his family were living with me. So I got a real taste of like what it's like to not get sleep as a parent (laughs) and not like kids when they're around (laughs) you. It's the best. See how good. First three years. But I've been thinking about all of the deprivation. Yeah, uh, you don't eat. Like <laughs> I lost it. I, it. It's nobody tells you that. Like I think they're fun yeah. now because they're yeah. So I right. um. But when they were from like one to three, like it was like I felt like like I'm not diagnosed with PTSD, but I feel like I went through something and I survived it. Like those first three years were just a lot of work. Yeah. <laughs> I t- I tell my brother it's the haunting because like. Now it's like when they're not there, I still hear feet like do 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 do, and I'm like, is there a two year old around? I I tease my brother too because his he has two girls, one is three and one is two. They just recently turned three and two, so you know what's going on there. It's not say he has a son too who's six, and I love them all, but I crack up because his girls they have the most eerie way of saying daddy. They're like, daddy. And I'm like, oh, sounds like somebody's coming to get you. 
<laughs> but um, I forget what we we were talking about. You had mentioned, oh yeah, the whole idea of like your mom teaching, and what I was talking about with my parents as well. It's I think that has to do with the fact that we are more aware of the fact that you have to respect people, right? So like. Even the things you were talking about earlier, Rainy, like, no, there's nothing wrong with you. This is who you are. And you're, it's perfectly fine for you to be that way. That is the idea, again, of environment changing for the individual, not expecting the individual to change for the environment. And there are so many times that even for myself, I have to retrain myself with the way I interact with others. Like my expectations are extremely high even that's and that's a lot of the weight too for that we carry as individuals my expectations are high of others and they're even crazier for myself and I haven't haven't been able to meet them yet you know I keep my mind keeps having that meeting you know all these people are sitting around telling me what I should do sometimes I have to tell them to be quiet but it's hard because they're loud you know but that's a new thought process of respecting people and meeting them where they are or just being able to mind your business and leaving them where they are. So I do think, although there are so, and I would agree with you, I look at my parents and I'm like, even my grandparents, they were amazing educators, but their belief system was that you should be able to conform to this environment. And if you're unable to conform to this environment, then we have to address the challenges with you. Whereas over time, we've seen the advances that have been made within IDEA, IDEA, which is um, policy surrounding uh, special education, what I really consider just customized education, uh, because we've had so many students that have suffered in silence and needed services, but uh, truly just deserved something different or unique. But we're we're really like you said we're not there yet because we're still transitioning to even understanding the value of an individual right and i think here it's important to bring that up because we saw throughout the pandemic how people were like f this job like i'm not going to die over this it's it's all everything's already like to to hell it's just crazy at this point so people started understanding what was or at least looking at what was more important you know whereas in other countries we think about latin american countries where they have a siesta i studied in spain for a while and that when i tell you siesta was like the thing that got me through now like a nap liz knows in a minute she'll be texting me oh sorry i was taking a nap you know or (laughs) having my personal time just being alone even those those thoughts as Americans, we do not see the value in it um, because our thought processes are just skewed when we consider the value of an individual. We don't do the same things of, uh, I would say, maybe group some of those communistic countries. We don't look at it as just, you don't deserve to be on the, the earth, right? And we don't necessarily kill people physically, but we kill them mentally. We put them aside or we don't acknowledge them or we don't hear what they have to say or we don't see them. So we do it in different ways or we just make you suffer 
by working a 12 hour workday without being able to come up for air, you know, hashtag middle school teacher. <laughs> I have a question though. I, uh, you asked us, but, um, I don't think we got the chance to hear your responses on what you think when you hear the word mental health, like what are your thoughts currently or, or historically? Uh, I, I think we were, I think that a long time ago, not even a long time ago, I think in the past, we physically assaulted people to cure them. And now wherever, where we're all standing here going, oh my God, that was so bad. We never should have done anything like that. But now we're prescribing medication that causes people to gain 200, 300 pounds. We're prescribing medication that causes sexual dysfunction and ruins relationships. We are, and the list goes on and on and on. I mean, if you want a cloudy head, you can't think straight anymore. How do you do your job? So there are so many side effects. I don't think that where we are right now is necessarily better per se it's just different mm. and it doesn't look as bad because once again it's not a physical attack it's not a physical treatment i agree with what you're saying and can also say that one of the first things i think of is how i have uh, i get migraines uh to the point where they de debilitate my life really and I also have mental illness and I know that when I share with people, I will much quicker relay that I get migraines, but I will keep all the other illness, chronic illness, things that are just as debilitating to myself in fear that I will be retaliated against, mm -hmm. whether that's socially, at my job. Even though everyone says, no, you won't ever be retaliated against, you won't, this won't ever be held against you. I don't want to put it down on paper or I don't want to share it with someone who's supervising me because even someone like me who tries to get more information from others and then in reciprocation tries to offer more of herself, I can't get past that barrier. So we actually did an episode, one of my favorite episodes that we did or that I was able to do research on was on Dorothea Dix, who had an impact on mental illness treatments and hospitals and the way people were treated in general with mental illness. And I don't know where I was going with that, except that it was my favorite episode. <laughs> <That's cool. laughs> I don't know. I just, Oh, because, yes, because I think I looked up to her as being bold enough to step out and say, these people, like, these people need help. These people need to be treated like humans, not animals or less, you know. Um, so I kind of look up to her like, wow, she was really brave to do that because I can't even say something to my friends about it. Yeah. Yeah. And it can so easily, like you're saying, even though they say, oh, we won't retaliate. It's it's personal. You know, we're not going to share it with anyone. 
it can so easily be used. We did, you made me think about one of our favorite shows too. And I can't remember her name, Liz, you know who I'm talking about, but. Idocratic. Idocratic, yes. And she was deemed towards the end of her life uh, as having mental illness as well when she simply was just trying to help people get their groove on. You know, she literally was like minding her own business, trying to help others save their relationships and be a, be comfortable with expressing themselves sexually within a safe space, right? She literally was sending information about it in the mail, closed and sealed envelopes where it should have only been between the sender and the receiver. And someone took it upon themselves to intercept that information and create a whole storyline following it so much so that it's like, you know, as Liz and I were talking about that, at some points they're like saying that she, uh, it was almost like they were making it as though she was hallucinating and she was seeing, you know, talking about things with aliens and stuff like that. And I thought about... No, she said she was talking to aliens. She did, but you know what? I think that was just an orgasm. Like, <laughs> you know... Yeah. <laughs> I think yeah. that's what it was for she her. She said she was married to an alien. This is new code here. Right. <laughs> I talked to aliens. Right. I, mean, I don't think that she had the issues that, and again, you know, that that that's kind of the scary thing with mental health too, because we also have so many thoughts because there's nothing concrete and we have to continue to work through it. But Yes, she said, look, I'm like, yes, she said those things, but <laughs> but no, I just really like to land on the, the side of her seeing things through a different lens that society was not ready for. So society deemed her as unfit, you know, and, and not able to interact. And the reason why I point that out too is because before someone was in her business, she was a, reg a regular, a typical member of society. But before, well, upon that person uh, giving his opinion and being like, I like to say loud and wrong, or I got that from Liz's partner, but loud and wrong, you know, no one deemed her as problematic. She was able to function, you know? So I don't know. I, I That's where I go back to that whole piece, too, of like culture, society, they definitely impact what is problematic when we think about mental issues and then what is acceptable. What's well, okay. Of course. I mean, we come from a society. Okay. I mean, is there anything more dangerous than a educated, sexually liberated woman? I mean, what is it? Isn't that um, what's right. his dumb face? Matt Gates made a tweet about, you know, everything that's going on with the abortion laws and um he made a tweet about you know all of these women who are upset you know they're educated and you know sexually liberal and you know they're probably not getting any and you know kind of equating to us being angry about what's happening as you know some sort of mental health thing and you know i think that's also been weaponized against women for history right like owning yeah. our sexuality mm -hmm. it's been weaponized against us forever and you know I, I, you can see that even in the history of mental health and what they deemed acceptable acceptable for women. And, you know, I think a lot of it is, you know, once women start figuring out like, oh, I don't have to take this shit. This is all you got. Now it's like, oh, no, no, shut her up. Oh shut God, her up. No, 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 no. Exactly. She's crazy. 
<laughs> she doesn't want to cook for you. Because <laughs> that's the easiest. Yeah. I mean, you got to consider the source with him. So anything he says is just yeah. falling out of his dumbass mouth I, like, or his dumbass hands. Nothing. I mean, just trash. You're a pedophile, yeah, dude. Trash yeah. human being. You're straight garbage. I do feel like I should clarify my stance on medication, though, because I always come in and I shit talk it. But I mean, this it keeps me alive. I take it every day. It keeps me alive. So I want to give it credit. I am still <laughs> mad about it. That's okay. I hear that. I definitely hear that. I feel the same way about uh, the food in this country. I'm like, this is all fake stuff. None of this is real. As I put the fry in my mouth with the the high sodium, right? You know, yeah. So I'm. Wait, you got chicken nuggets? I need chicken. Right, right. Right. And that's the whole thing of the cycle, like with when we think about America, because just like you're talking about with the medication, I got really into uh, the Sacklers and that whole situation with Oxy. Uh, kind and the system that they surround they created surrounding pain um and they literally like fed themselves and any other upper tier up uh, yeah upper tier individuals within the pharmaceutical industry right so they've they've created a system that you have to take multiple drugs for in order to like exist in society once you've become an addict or use that, that drug. Right. Um, and it's hard to undo once you, you get involved with it. And it's, it's, it goes back to, again, I keep throwing this word out, but it goes back to culture because you think about America, we're a capitalistic society. So that is the finances and, and income and revenue. Those things are of the extreme importance to us. So we're going to find ways to continue to create create a system that will feed itself so that our economy will grow. Uh, and we don't care at whose expense it is, you know? That even reminds me of something my mom, you know, has always said, even regarding mental health and being on medication. And, you know, I think it also comes to culture too, but, you know, she was always very like, you know, don't, if you have to go see someone to talk to, you know, don't go see a psychiatrist. Don't go see somebody who's going to prescribe you something because once you're on something, that's it. You'll never be able to function without it. And, you know, it's always been that fear. Like if I, if I take something, I can never get off of it. And, and I think there's that distrust. And I think that you see a lot of distrust in the black community of the medical field anyways. I mean, rightly so. I mean, you know, it hasn't exactly been you know, daisies and, and roses for the black community and medicine anyways. And so you pair that, that deep distrust that the black community already has for the medical field. And then, you know, the stigma against mental health and then kind of being like, you need to figure it out on your own because they're not here to help you. You know, they, they want you addicted and paying your money. You know, they, they, these are the same systems that introduced crack cocaine into an entire community and crippled the black community. You know, they introduced syphilis and the syphilis experiment that went on for 30 years. So, you know, in the black, you know, blue has mentioned the culture a lot, but, you know, I think the topics and the conversations around mental health and what to do with mental health can really, really stunt growth because there is a deep seated fear and distrust 
of any sort of medications put forth because of how it has gone for people of color in this country. So, you know, even if you wanted to try to get help, you're also like, but if I get help, is this something that I will have to do for the rest of my life? Is this something where I will never be okay if I am not on it? And like we've talked about on this show, sometimes it is. Sometimes you get on something and then there's never, there's no coming back from it. And people are like, I'd rather take my chances. Right. But that doesn't come, you're not on it long-term because of the medication you're on it long-term because you needed to be on it long-term it's just the difference of are you living your life medicated or unmedicated Mm -hmm. and so i mean technically yes you could go off of it if you wanted to but you're going to go right back to that place you were beforehand and that's the fear like that's that's the fear that my mom has always kind of been like don't don't that seems scary to be reliant on anything that comes forward from the society that has traditionally not been the best to us, you know? Right. Yeah. Right. Right. I've been watching this show on Netflix unwell. I don't know if you all have checked it out yet. It's really interesting. So what they talk about are essentially like more organic or natural ways to, um, self-medicate but you know assist with different challenges that you may be experiencing whether it's mental health some they even went on to like physical health cancer diabetes different things like that um and within the show they talk about because just as i was getting at before in america or a capitalistic society how the western civilization when we impact those natural or more organic ways of working through those challenges, it's altered, right? And while within its its home community, it may be delivered in a, a certain way and they may see success, or there may also be some other uh, cultural tradi- tradition associated with it because it's being altered and because everything here is about making money you still don't always arrive at that, the expected result, you know, and of it being more of a healthy resource. Um, but then it's also interesting because you, we, when I watch some of the episodes and then I think about different experiences that I've had with traveling uh, and speaking with people, they talk about how we do impact Uh, more traditional or healthy ways of doing things because we want to put our own spin on it and I forget where I was going with this completely but um well I was gonna say I was getting to the point go ahead Liz I was gonna say like for some of us like taking medication it's not like smoking marijuana like we don't feel different on the medication we just feel quote-unquote normal or we feel as close as what you mm-hmm. feel on a regular day. So I think like a big misconception. And I'd say like maybe for our parents' generation, because my mom said the same shit, Rainy. And it's like, yeah. I think there's just like, mm-hmm. again, it, we're always educating ourselves, like, right? So it's, for some of us, we don't feel high, but we're able to communicate. If that makes any sense. Yeah. But you know what's Absolutely. funny? My mom yeah. said the same shit. And now she's on anxiety meds. So who won now? (laughs) (laughs) 
Leave mom alone. <laughs> but that also speaks to the fact that there it's we all experience it. Like we all, and it being different aspects of mental illness, because we are influenced by our environment, you know, and we all have had different experiences. I like to think someday it's all just going to be like, oh, well, take this pill for seven days. See you next year. Yeah, that's if you, but you know what? I was going to say that's if you sit in the house and don't do anything, but that also would cause you to... (laughs) still yeah no matter what it doesn't yes, matter what you Jennifer. do you still end up there you know definitely so what do you all think about um and the first person that's coming to mind I don't know why but is R. Kelly because I think that his story is so convoluted because he is also a victim of like trauma and mental health and has poorly affected so many people other people's lives right women in particular, um, being a part of like being a pedophile, you know, what do you think about just like you were talking about before you've done other shows with serial killers and different things like that? Do you, do they ever have or hold like a little bit of, oh, well, I get where they were coming from for you all when you're reading their stories and discussing their stories? Yeah. I see a yes and a no. Uh Yeah. I, You know, immediately the first thing I thought was it doesn't give you the right to abuse Mm -hmm. others. Nothing does. Mm -hmm. Right. Your own illnesses, your own belief systems, nothing gives you the right to abuse or disrespect somebody Mm -hmm. else. So while we can say like, I've thought about that a lot, actually, to pedophiles, they're, they're given this title that there's something mentally different mm-hmm. and it's not okay still to, to abuse someone mm-hmm. else. I just felt pretty passionately. However, I think when Jennifer was shaking her, I don't want to put words in her mouth, but also you, you do, it does give you that perspective to say, what if, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a lot of survivors. Yeah. That's such a there's great a question. Of survivors of that that don't go on and be to be pedophiles. And that's like what I like to point mm-hmm. out. Is Absolutely. Like, oh, who is the guy who chopped off his mom's head and he used to, it was in California. He used to. Yes. Ed Kemper. So it's like, you know, not everybody, some people have had shitty lives. It doesn't mean, <laughs> you know, you're going to end up killing people. It doesn't give him an excuse. Although I am so curious. And I talk about this every single time we, we talk about serial killers is, if his mom was not the awful woman that she was, yes. who would he have been? He could have still grown up to be a serial killer. Like, I, I don't know. It, but it's a question that it's I have. It's the ultimate mm-hmm. question of nature versus nurture, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Now, what if you what if you were a person who was plagued by, you know, um, thoughts of young children and there was nothing you could do to get it out of your head? And I am absolutely not justifying pedophilia, but can you imagine living with that every single day? And there are people who will go out of their way to try to have like chemical castration or other things done Mm -hmm. to try to avoid reoffending or offending at all. And I just think that's, that would be a horrible situation to be in. Yeah. 
again, no, no justification. But I mean, like, and then there's that stigma, right? Like, you know, I even think of my own reaction when Blue posed a question and I had like a visceral reaction, like, uh, uh, right? And, you know, but now thinking about it, like, if you, like you so eloquently put it, if you're plagued by that every single day and then you go to ask for help, are there many people in the world who are going to look at you and say, let me help you? Like, okay, all right, how do we deal with it? Or do you have the kind of reaction like I just had that, mm-hmm. oh my God, right. right? Like that. I mean, because, you know, and right. I, I, I think of being an educator, being a mother of children, I immediately, my gut reaction is save the babies, right? Save the babies mm-hmm. at all costs. But, you know, my my gut reaction is not to think of that person, that adult. My adult is save this child from this person who will harm them. And I, I think that as a society that is. So, you know, what does a person do? What does a person do who does that? Who is in those, who has, like you said, like you said, it's plagued by that. Are there mm-hmm. resources? Do we? It's certainly not openly talked about, right? Like where, where do, right. where does somebody go for that? You know, or are they automatically cast as you were unfixable? You were so broken right. beyond repair. You, you aren't, a, you aren't in the same realm of, of humanity anymore. And then what? Do, what does that person do? How right. long can you deal with that on your own? I think it would be similar to like obsessive compulsive thoughts um and like even one of the mm-hmm. obsessive thoughts pedophilia um that that they say that those individuals like it's one of the common ones and i think that they can get i think there's a, like an example again i'm not an expert i just read this shit like i'm just saying i think that it's more of a psychologist as opposed to a psychiatrist, what do you think? I'm think what I mean is, I think it's more of a mental, like um, talk therapy, like changing behaviors and thought patterns, or maybe getting to the root of why you feel that way in the first place, as opposed to taking uh, medication to stop. Don't know, don't have the diagnosis, just like throwing it out there. I don't know enough about pedophilia God, to right? answer that question. Um, I don't know what I would do if I were you know, plagued with thoughts like that. Cause I wouldn't want to tell anybody right. you think how bad it is to tell somebody your, your mental health diagnosis. Imagine being like, Oh, by the way, and I'm not going to say it. Right. <clears throat> because if I do, somebody will take it out and be like, you hear what she said? Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. I'm not right. giving you the but sound. But even the fact guys. that you, you are nervous to even say it out loud for the sound clip because of the stigma that would come with that. Yeah. Right. Like, if- <laughs> and you know yeah. what I'll- what else I was thinking is the fact that not, all of us were like, I don't know very much about that. I have books on my shelf about autism. I have books on my shelf entirely dedicated to mental illness in the workplace. I don't have any books to understand pedophilia. I don't know anybody who I, does. And, and I don't know that I would feel comfortable putting it on the shelf. Right. Or ordering it from Amazon. For other people to know. Right, right, right. I wouldn't yeah. feel comfortable putting that right. in my Google. Right. Like, 
right. Googling that, like what, what, I, like I wouldn't even feel comfortable doing that. I certainly wouldn't want to go to my local library and ask the librarian. I Google some fucked up shit. So <laughs> the fact that I wouldn't put that into my search. But fun. like yeah. we have work to do, you know, like we, yeah, yeah. even, yeah. I'm sorry. I know I went off there, but no, no, I, I think that that's exactly, I, I think that that's something that we have to talk about and, and do. I mean, you know, like you said, and you said it so many times, and I love that you said it, like, it does not, your your mental illness, your your the things that you have going on does not give you the right to abuse anyone else. And that's the line, right? The minute you abuse someone else, that's where, you know, it's like, it's a done deal, done deal. But up until that, what do we do with those people who are struggling to not abuse mm-hmm. someone? What do we do with people who are trying not to cross that line, right? And where do they get help when their mental illness is so, for lack of a better term, really, it is really abhorrent to the rest Mm -hmm. of us, right? Like that idea is just so outside of and antithetical to everything we stand for and believe in. But there are people who deal with that. There are people who struggle every single day with that. Where do they get help? Yeah, I... My thing is, and I'm not justifying by any means anyone harming someone else, but I will use the word justification. (laughs) The only reason that I bring that up is because I'm of the belief if you don't teach someone what to do and what not to do, then you cannot expect them to know what to do and what not to do, right? And that being applicable to society. So like, I I remember I was on an island, I forget which island I was on. And I made a joke, I tripped at the market there and I made a joke about suing them. And that was like the biggest, you know, American showing up, I'm suing somebody, you know, that that's where our jokes go. And that was like, not accepted within their culture at all, right? So I had to learn what is acceptable interaction there however it's very common here to make sarcastic jokes and just completely like we're talking about not necessarily regard different aspects of of respect right and um from different perspectives but I want to go back to the space of like and and I think this is just important because with pedophilia or even violence, we see that it continues within certain cycles. We have certain data that demonstrates, you know, if uh, children, and I'm, I don't have the exact facts in front of me, but by a certain age are demonstrating certain things, such as killing animals, um, at, participating or exhibiting certain behaviors, then they're more likely to exhibit violent behaviors in the future, right? Mm-hmm. If we know that and if we're knowledgeable of that and we're not teaching people what not to do, then we can't. But yet we're creating an over-sexualized society or we're creating an over, you know, we see more on the news. You're able to see more white sheets with dead bodies under them than ever before. Then what are our expectations? Really, we just expect people to be able to conform without conversation, because if that's your norm, in your environment, right? Like the person who is closest to you, who feeds you, who provides shelter is doing those things to you or exhibits that type of, um, that that's the response at, when it's punishment or whether they're excited, then 
why would you not think that that's the way to exhibit those same, right. you know, celebrations or um, challenges? So to me, while no, they are not justified until we at we as a collective and I always go back to schools because that's the main place that we all have to move through in this country, right? We say it's free. It's not really free, but we have public education here. Everyone can attend. The masses go through that system. So until we start to teach people how to use their mind, what thoughts need to be a conversation and not necessarily a a conversation that ends with, you know, putting someone away or calling a hospital, but having the equipped professionals to discuss and move through those conversations. I don't really know what we expect other people to do, you know, not other people. I don't know what we expect people to do. We've seen the increases in suicide, just like we were talking about, even within this pandemic, you would think that there have been, and there have been some shifts with social and emotional health in education, but you would think that we would be responsive in that with that data you know, because it's there. We see the school shootings. We're seeing mass shootings in like numbers we've never seen before. So why are we not responsive to it? I think if we were to teach mental health and we were to teach relationship to the children, then it's going to help people understand what's going on with them. Mm -hmm. And then they're going to know it's, oh, I'm not the only person that feels like this, despite what possibly my family is telling me or my mm-hmm. friends are telling me, or, you know, I'm, I'm not going to have to stay on medication for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. Possibly. I don't know. But, you know, to give the, the facts versus mm. the fears. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, like comprehensive education, comprehensive sex education, mental mm-hmm. health education. But then you have these advocate groups who are like, that's not the school's job to teach my kid that, but you also won't teach right. your kid that. But, yeah, you know, yeah, nah. We all remember, yeah, but, you know, we can shove the Pythagorean theorem down your throat. Mm -hmm. That, you know, that that's what we really as a country. And those of you who use a Pythagorean theorem every day, I apologize. Like, I'm not I'm not shitting on it, but (laughs) most of us don't. I but I sure in the hell remember that. But I don't remember talking about mental health in high school. I don't remember having comprehensive sex education. All I you know, I don't remember having these very real topics about who we were as human beings and how to move in spaces with other human beings. Yeah. Research demonstrates, and I'm stuck on the pedophilia situation, (laughs) but I'm just bringing that up because I think (laughs) it's, it's interesting because a lot of pedophilia pedophiles are victims themselves. So that's why I think that's such an interesting situation and an interesting aspect of mental health. But Research demonstrates that like kids at the age of one and two masturbate, right? We don't call it that, but we, but it happens there. It's the, the, um, stimulation, you know, in uh, the sensory stimulation, I guess we would consider that. So if we're aware, again, that's the point that I'm getting at. If we're aware that you still have these natural humanistic or even animalistic experiences, it's our job to teach people if we want them to be productive, we want them to be able to coexist. We have to teach them how to interact and what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. Another thing that I think, and I just think this is interesting because really to me, it's like, 
if it's not the norm, if it's not typical, then we consider it, um, you know, a mental illness of sorts, right? There's also an increase in voyeurism, you know, that again, we have to teach people, hey, you can't do this here. If we, if we don't teach, if the person hasn't been taught, I don't believe they know. That's how, that's where I come from. That's my, that's my stance. I think at the end of the day, I mean, to kind of like, at the end of the day, all of this, I think helps resolve with awareness, Mm -hmm. right? right? Awareness and having open, honest dialogue and conversation. And, you know, I think that's what you two do on your show, right? Talking about these subjects. And that's, I think what we try to do on our show is have the damn conversation. Mm -hmm. Stop hiding things behind walls and acting like it is we there are things we can't talk about you know if you don't talk about them it doesn't me- mean it's not happening right. so talk about it have right. be brave enough to have conversations yeah just to piggyback yeah. off of what you're saying before we start wrapping up here i do want to mention again that on our podcast website we have various resources it for people who need help in whatever ways um one of them being mental illness and so if anyone, any of our listeners are kind of resonating with certain things that we're talking about here today, I would encourage you to go to our website and just see if there's a resource there that might be helpful to you. Um, and also, I don't want to put our guests on the spot, but is there any specific organization or re- resource that you would want to offer to our listeners should they want to get more information or if they want help? I do have a website that I want to share. Give me one second to pull it Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, our website, if you want to go check it out, is com, and it's on the guest links page. Yeah, NAMI is a great organization, N-A-M-I, for mental illness mm-hmm. and mental illness awareness, and it's a place that you can get help if you need it. Yes, that's an or- an awesome org. I have seen them and offered them as a resource to others as well. So that's great. I wanted to touch on two therapy for black girls, just as Rainey was talking about earlier, because there are so many nuances to uh, different cultures and how they view mental illness and mental health. Uh, And even for those of us that have been in sessions with a therapist you understand how important it is for that person to have an idea of your culture and what your norms are and what your understandings are. So Therapy for Black Girls is also a great site. It's therapyforblackgirls.com. And what it allows individuals to do is search for therapists that are nearby who offer both virtual and in-person counseling. Uh, But I would also suggest, uh, just as you're saying, using these resources and then doing your own research to find out within your own culture, who's uh, doing what and how you can take part in it. Because there are just so many uh, different thought processes that we, that we have as individuals and how our culture has impacted those thoughts surrounding mental health. I'll put that up on our, on our guest link site. Also a link to that. Is there Anything else that you really want people to know before we wrap up about mental health? Um, I think, like I was saying, talk, 
find someone to talk to. I mean, you know, it, I don't mean to sound like a PSA, but, you know, at the end of the day, you're not alone and, you know, you are valuable and you are loved, even if it doesn't always feel like that. And find someone to talk to, find online resources and, and you know, do what you can to reach out to people who will embrace you and work with you and, and have your best interest in mind. And for those that are loved ones of people that are experiencing challenges with mental health, understand that data shows when people begin to discuss suicide, it means they have been considering it. So be responsive, be responsive to what people are saying, listen to what they are saying, just like Rainey's saying, as they're talking, get, give them the stage. Don't try to find the similarities in what they're necessarily saying and how you did it, you know, by yourself, be, be aware, listen to them, hear them and understand that what they're feeling is real. Their journey may not be the same as yours. Mm -hmm. And very likely it's not the same as yours. Right. I wanted to give a bit of, I wanted to give a bit of practical advice. um, Something that I learned in therapy that I wanted to share. And I think it's applicable to anyone, no matter how rich or poor you may be. Um, If you have a piece of paper and a pen, or we have these handy dandy phones nowadays, you might have an app. Like I use Google docs journaling. Journaling really helps Mm. get it out. So even if you don't have anyone to speak to or you feel like you're alone um, or you don't have the financial resources to um, get professional therapeutic help, I just wanted to share with you one technique that is pretty simple and and I think most of us can do it. Um, Journal. Get your thoughts out. You don't have to live with them. Put them on the paper. Most importantly, you're not alone. Absolutely. Can you tell everyone where they can find you on the internet again? Oh, we are the reddovepodcast.com. And you can find a link to all of our shows. And we are on the Twitters and Facebook and Instagram. It's uh, Red Dove Podcast. Oh, Facebook. Oh, you can find us on Spotify and <laughs> and <laughs> iHeartRadio and Good Pods. Um, so you can find us on all of the major streaming platforms where you find your podcasts. Well, ladies, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciated you being here. This is a fantastic conversation. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us. I, I really enjoyed it. I did as well. Diane, do you have anything to tell the listeners? Excellent. What I had heard was we are out of time and we will see you sometime. 